Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup, so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. When Christopher Columbus was on his first voyage to the New World, he reported experiencing some unusual compass readings as well as seeing a strange light in the sky over the ocean that he described as looking like a great flame that crashed into the water. Most historians assume this was just a meteor. But according to some versions of this tale, the light Columbus saw didn't just crash down into the ocean, but it also rose back up again. If this story is to be believed, Columbus took the light as a sign that land lay in that direction, so he directed his men to sail right for it. Only they never found land. As further evidence that there might be something to Columbus's recounting of this peculiar event, three other members of his crew also later reported seeing the same thing. This is often cited as one of the earliest known accounts of strange things happening in a legendary stretch of the Atlantic Ocean. This infamous region encompasses roughly 500,000 miles bounded by Miami, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. It has been known to sailors by many names over the years, but it's from Bermuda where it takes its most famous title the Bermuda Triangle. Throughout the centuries, it's been reported that hundreds of planes and ships have mysteriously gone missing in the Bermuda Triangle. Many of those mysterious disappearances have reportedly occurred in what should have been good weather and calm seas. And often, no trace of the missing plane or vessel is ever seen again. It's been said that William Shakespeare's play The Tempest was actually based on a terrible shipwreck that occurred in the Bermuda Triangle back around 1610. Throughout the history of the Triangle, people have often tried to tie some of the most legendary shipwrecks and strange ocean occurrences with the mysterious region. One of the most famous such incidents would have to be the story of the Mary Celeste, the legendary ghost ship that was found adrift without any of its crew aboard. Although I should point out that the legendary abandoned ship was found adrift well outside the boundaries of the so-called Bermuda Triangle near Portugal. But despite this, the Bermuda Triangle still has plenty of other weird tales to tell. One story goes that in 1881, the American schooner, the Ellen Austin, was on her way to New York from London when her crew came across another unidentified schooner drifting just north of the Sargasso Sea. At first, the captain was hesitant to do anything other than observe the mystery vessel from a distance. He was worried that it was some sort of trap. Eventually, though, the captain gave in to curiosity and sent over some men to board the unidentified vessel and see what they could find. Just like the Mary Celeste... The ship was well-stocked and appeared perfectly ship-shape. And also like the Mary Celeste, the ship's crew was missing. There seemed to be no reason for its crew to have just abandoned ship. 
The only other things missing from the ship were the vessel's logbook and nameplate, which someone had removed from the bow. According to legend, the superstitious crew of the Ellen Austin believed the boat was cursed and wanted to leave it adrift. But Captain Baker of the Ellen Austin was seeing dollar signs and convinced his men that this was a prime opportunity to make some money by salvaging the other vessel. He convinced several of his crew to remain aboard the unnamed ship and sail up back to New York. But two days into their voyage, both ships ran into a fierce squall that seemed to come up out of nowhere. Once the storm was over, the captain of the Ellen Austin realized something was amiss because the other ship had begun to drift aimlessly again. When he sent another party over to investigate, it turned out the men he had left behind on the other vessel had vanished as well. So according to legend, this really compounded the terror the men aboard the Ellen Austin felt. Nonetheless, the captain managed to persuade yet another group of men to try it again and head over to the mystery ship. Only this time they would keep sailing right alongside the Ellen Austin where they could keep a constant eye on one another. But a couple days later, both ships encountered a mysterious fog that enveloped them both and caused them to lose sight of one another. And when the fog lifted, the unnamed vessel that should have been sailing right next to the Ellen Austin had completely vanished without a trace. Skeptics have rightly pointed out a number of holes in the story of the Ellen Austin. But like a lot of stories in the Bermuda Triangle, it can be difficult to tell how much can be believed and how much has gotten wrapped up in the folklore over the years. There are a number of other Bermuda Triangle stories I could mention dating back to the 18th and 19th centuries. But if you research mysterious Bermuda Triangle vanishings, for the most part the most famous incidents don't occur until the 20th century. One of the biggest and most mysterious such occurrences happened in 1918 when the USS Cyclops a 542-foot-long Navy cargo ship containing 300 men and 10,000 tons of manganese ore vanished somewhere between Barbados and the Chesapeake Bay. The captain of the Cyclops never sent a distress signal, nor did anyone aboard the ship respond to radio signals. The last reported radio message from the Cyclops was, Weather fair, all well. Although a massive search effort was put forth looking for the missing cargo ship, no trace of the Cyclops was ever found. Then, to only deepen the mystery, in 1941, two of the Cyclops' sister ships also vanished without a trace after sailing the same route. But without a doubt, the story that really cemented the Bermuda Triangle's sinister reputation occurred in December 1945. That was when five TBM Avenger naval bombers carrying 14 men took off from Fort Lauderdale, Florida on a training run. But what should have been a routine mission soon took an astonishing turn when the captain of the squadron began reporting both his compasses were malfunctioning and for some reason both he and his men were unable to find their way to back to land. Eventually all contact with the crew of Flight 19 was lost. Soon after a rescue mission was mounted, only the Navy then lost contact with one of the rescue planes as well. Every one of them vanished without a trace, swallowed up, by the Bermuda Triangle. I'm Nate Hale, and if anyone knows where I'm at, let me know. It, it's dark and scary out here. And this is The Conspirators. By December 1945, World War II had just ended a few months earlier, and most Americans were ready to settle back into some semblance of normal life. 
The Allies had won the war, and it seemed like the world had found peace once again. But in truth, there were plenty of new conflicts yet to come. Within less than five years, the United States would be engaged in another war in Korea. On top of that, the Cold War was already ramping up as the Soviet Union was being seen as the next major threat on the horizon. The fear of nuclear annihilation came to be on the minds of every American, and in particular, members of the U.S. military command. Thus, there remained a need for the U.S. Navy and U.S. Army Air Force to keep training pilots to patrol the skies. One such training school could be found at the U.S. Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. By that point in time, jet planes were being seen as the wave of the future, but even still, the air station in Fort Lauderdale was still training its pilots in what would soon be outdated propeller-driven aircraft. The very nature of combat flying was changing. Guided weapons were already seen as the next big thing. And the torpedo bombers that pilots were being trained on would soon be relics of the past. Nonetheless, what happened to Flight 19 is all the more unprecedented because of how common such training flights were back then. The U.S. military flew hundreds of such training flights every year without incident. Sure, occasionally one plane might crash, but never five all at once. And not like this. Flight 19 actually gets its name because it was the 19th training flight that took off from the naval base on December 5, 1945. Despite already being considered older technology, in fact, the Grumman TBM Avenger had only been in service at that point since 1942. Each of these planes was designed to fly with a three-man crew, pilot, radio operator, and bombardier. Which meant there should have actually been 15 men on that particular training mission that day. But one of the men requested to be excused from the mission, leaving only 14. One of the legends of Flight 19 goes that the man had a terrible premonition that something bad was going to occur and refused to fly that day. On that afternoon in December, the men of Flight 19 were supposed to fly a routine four-leg bombing run. This was actually going to be the final training mission for the crew who flew out the day before they graduated and were given full pilot certification. Each of the TBM Avengers were supposed to be outfitted with three important pieces of equipment that were considered vital towards navigation. The airspeed indicator, two gyro compasses, and an electric clock. But records of pre-flight checks showed that many of the planes that were flying as part of Flight 19 didn't actually have their clocks installed. This meant each pilot who took off was expected to be wearing a wristwatch to compensate for the missing timepieces. One of the things the men who took off on Flight 19 were being trained on is a method of navigation known as dead reckoning. Although pilots flying over land would typically use their compasses and looking for landmarks below like rivers and mountains to get a fix in their location... Naval pilots would often be expected to fly over large stretches of open ocean with no discernible landmarks, making dead reckoning a necessity. Basically, the idea was that as long as the pilots flew on a known course at a known speed for a known length of time, they would always be able to calculate their location. The practice bombing run Flight 19 was scheduled to fly should have only taken about two and a half hours. The first leg of the flight the pilots were supposed to fly almost due east from Fort Lauderdale for 56 miles, until they reached a group of tiny, uninhabited islands called Hen and Chicken Shoals, where they would drop their dummy bombs. The second leg of their journey would then take them on a heading of 091 degrees, 67 miles away to another small island called Great Stirrup K, after which the pilots would move on to the third leg, where they were supposed to fly over the island of Grand Bahama before turning once again and heading back to base on the fourth leg. The weather on the morning of December 5th was pretty average for Florida that time of year, 
The temperature hovered around 67 degrees and skies early on were mostly clear. Although weather reports were predicting rain later on, which is pretty typical for Florida. But this also made it all the more vital that everything remained on schedule. But that's not what happened. The flight leader and instructor was a lieutenant named Charles Carroll Taylor. He was an experienced combat veteran with over 2,500 hours of flight time. He had actually piloted the TBM Avenger in several successful missions over the Pacific during World War II, so he knew this particular aircraft well. But on that afternoon when Flight 19 was to depart, something seemed amiss right off the bat. Lieutenant Taylor was almost a half hour late showing up for the mission briefing. He didn't arrive at the airfield until 1.10 p.m., and when he did finally make it to the briefing room, he strode right past the crew and went to find his friend, Lieutenant Howard Williams, in operations. He told Williams that something just didn't feel right to him, and he asked his friend if he wouldn't mind leading Flight 19 instead. Williams didn't know what was going on with Taylor, but later on, he would report the man definitely seemed spooked by something. According to naval regulations, any pilot can opt out of any flight if they could provide a valid reason. But Taylor couldn't properly express what it was that was bothering him, so Williams turned him down. So next, Taylor went to find the aviation duty officer, Lieutenant Arthur Curtis. This time, Lieutenant Taylor made a formal request to be relieved of command of the mission. Lieutenant Curtis also wanted to know what was going on. This was highly unusual after all coming to him at the last minute like this. But once again, Taylor couldn't give a proper explanation why he didn't want to lead this particular training mission, just that he didn't feel right about it. Curtis reminded Taylor that they couldn't possibly find a replacement on such short notice, and that if they scrapped the mission, that meant that they would have to reschedule for next week, and the men wouldn't graduate on time. This also meant they'd likely end up miss getting home to their families in time for the holidays. So with no other options... Lieutenant Taylor reluctantly agreed to lead the flight that day. They ended up taking off about 25 minutes late. By that point, the weather had already begun to change, and it was starting to lightly drizzle. As the planes took off and the last observers in the grounds watched them grow smaller and smaller in the sky, no one suspected at that point that they would never be seen again. After this point, we mainly have the radio communications from the pilots to give us some clue as to what happened to them after that. Sometime between 2.30 and 3 p.m., aircraft-to-aircraft transmissions were picked up by the operations center, which indicated that Flight 19 had made it safely to Hen and Chicken Shoals. One of the pilots was overheard saying he had one more bomb to drop. Then someone else, probably Lieutenant Taylor, responded by telling him to go ahead and drop it. But the next radio transmission that was overheard seemed to be the point things began to go wrong. At around 3.40 p.m., senior flight instructor Lieutenant Robert Cox was out flying an Avenger FT-74 waiting for another training flight. That's when he heard a broken and garbled radio message that sounded like one of the other pilots nearby was in distress. He repeatedly heard a voice asking someone in Powers what his compass was reading. This query was likely directed toward Captain Edward Joseph Powers Jr., who was one of the Flight 19 trainees. Even though Captain Powers outranked Lieutenant Taylor, he still deferred to Taylor, who was the flight leader and the one with the most hours in the air. Assuming this was Lieutenant Taylor asking about the compass readings, in retrospect, the next thing he was overheard saying is downright disturbing. I don't know where we are, he said. We must have got lost after that last turn. Lieutenant Cox remained in contact with the radio operators on the ground about the situation. Ground base operators were unable to pick up any transmission from Lieutenant Taylor's plane's IFF, 
a signal device which is short for identification, friend, or foe, and was typically used in combat situations to identify friendly aircraft. If Lieutenant Taylor or any of the other men had turned on their IFF, it would have helped ground control determine their position. But for some reason throughout that day, there were several moments where the crew of Flight 19, and in particular Lieutenant Taylor, either ignored orders or perhaps were unable to hear them. At one point, Taylor was specifically told to turn off his transmitter used by air traffic controller, but he had never acknowledged the order. Lieutenant Cox continued to monitor the radio chatter for the next 15 minutes. The voices he was hearing were coming in garbled and broken, which indicated the flight must have been some distance away. At one point, he heard a voice, again, presumably Lieutenant Taylor, ask if anyone had any idea where they were, followed by, I think we must be over the keys. By now, Lieutenant Cox was concerned enough that he decided to leave his training flight behind and go looking for Flight 19. Cox put out a blind transmission asking for the flight leader to identify himself. After repeating himself several times, Lieutenant Cox finally got a response from Lieutenant Taylor giving his flight identification. But even this was odd, because Lieutenant Taylor told him, Roger, this is MT-28. But that wasn't right. It was the wrong radio call sign. What Lieutenant Taylor should have said was that he was FT-28. MT-28 was the call sign for the torpedo bombers who flew out of Taylor's previous base in Miami. Nonetheless, Lieutenant Cox pressed on and asked Taylor to explain what was going on. Taylor responded by saying that both his compasses were out and he was trying to find Fort Lauderdale. Taylor said he was flying over land, but it was broken, which meant he thought he was flying over the Florida Keys. But this didn't make any sense at all to Lieutenant Cox, because he knew full well that Flight 19 should have been 100 miles northeast of the Keys. Besides that, even if both Taylor's compasses had failed, Cox knew even an inexperienced pilot should have had the basic knowledge to navigate back to Fort Lauderdale. He told Lieutenant Taylor he just needed to direct his plane so that the sun was on his port wing. If he was in the Keys as he thought, then he should be able to fly due north up along the coast and get back safely. After that, Lieutenant Cox aimed his aircraft south on a heading towards the Keys hoping to intercept the missing flight. He asked Lieutenant Taylor's altitude and told him of his plans to meet up with Flight 19 and help guide them home. Lieutenant Taylor tried to argue, telling him he was at an altitude of 2,300 feet and that Lieutenant Cox shouldn't come after them, but Cox insisted. At this point, it was becoming clear to everyone both in the air and on the ground that Flight 19 was seriously lost. By then, it's estimated that Flight 19 had somewhere around three to three and a half hours of fuel remaining. It was also around then that Fort Lauderdale Operations asked Lieutenant Cox to relay a message and get clarification from Lieutenant Taylor about his actual call sign. Was it MT-28 or FT-28? Taylor responded that he was FT-28. He then explained that he and his flight team were out on the second leg of their route when they began to get the idea they were off course. Normally, the trainees take turns leading the flight, and the flight instructor is there to hang back and observe. But when Lieutenant Taylor realized they were headed the wrong way, he took over and began doing the other thing he was there for, leading them back to safety. The problem was Taylor came to believe that both his compasses weren't working properly either, which only further complicated their situation. Lieutenant Cox instructed Taylor to allow one of the other pilots who still had a working compass to take over leading the flight, but Lieutenant Taylor either didn't hear this advice or chose to ignore it. One other problem Lieutenant Cox and Fort Lauderdale flight operations began experiencing were that Lieutenant Taylor's radio transmissions were growing increasingly fainter and more garbled, indicating that wherever they were headed, they must have been getting further away from land. Soon, Lieutenant Cox lost all radio contact with Flight 19. 
He later told a board of inquiry that he believed that even as he was headed south toward the Keys, he began to suspect Lieutenant Taylor was headed north and was likely flying over Bimini or the Bahamas, not the Keys as he said. After that Air Sea Rescue Unit 4 at Port Everglades, which had also been monitoring the situation, took over communications with Flight 19. They gave Lieutenant Taylor the same instructions that Lieutenant Cox had tried to give him earlier. Allow one of the other flight crew with a working compass to take the lead. Lieutenant Taylor did acknowledge this instruction. After that, the radio operator at Unit 4 next instructed him to do something that should have been basic knowledge even to the entire training flight. All the pilots had been instructed if they'd ever become disoriented while flying over the Atlantic, all they needed to do was turn their aircraft due west or even aim for the afternoon sun and sooner or later they would reach land. The next radio transmission from Flight 19 was heard at 4.45 p.m. This again was Lieutenant Taylor's voice who apparently had not heeded the instructions to allow one of the other pilots to take the lead in navigating the flight. He told Unit 4 that they would spend another 45 minutes flying at a heading of 30 degrees, then turn north to make sure they weren't flying somewhere over the Gulf of Mexico. From there, Lieutenant Taylor's responses were becoming increasingly strange. At one point, the ground radio operator instructed Lieutenant Taylor to switch over to the search and rescue frequency called the Yellow Band, and Lieutenant Taylor responded, I cannot change frequency. I must keep my planes intact. Flight 19's radio communications were also growing increasingly fainter and more garbled, indicating they must have been flying farther and farther away over the Atlantic. But even still, for a while, radio operators on the ground were able to continue to pick up other chatter indicating that other members of the flight crew were becoming increasingly frustrated as well. One voice was overheard, likely Captain Powers, saying angrily, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. At 516, land-based radio operators who were still able to communicate with Flight 19 were informed by Taylor that they were going to continue to fly 270 degrees until they hit beach or ran out of gas. At that point, it really did seem like Flight 19 was finally headed west. By then, it was estimated the planes only had about two hours of fuel left. But even then, that should have been enough to bring them back to Florida. But Flight 19's problems weren't over yet. The entire ordeal had dragged down for so long that the weather had grown worse. Because of the approaching storms, the Navy decided at that point not to send any other planes up looking for the missing flight. At 5.50, the Gulf and Eastern Sea Frontier high-frequency nets managed to triangulate Lieutenant Taylor's position based on his radio transmissions. Flight 19 was well off course. They were somewhere within a 100-mile radius north of the Bahamas and roughly 120 miles east of Daytona Beach. Unfortunately, this information was never told to Flight 19, presumably because it was believed they were already back headed in the right direction. The sun had begun to set by then, which meant it would be dark by the time the planes reached the coast. So all stations along the coast were alerted to turn on their searchlights in order to guide the pilots home. But then at 6.04, one more bit of radio chatter was picked up between Lieutenant Taylor and Captain Powers. Taylor told Cox that he believed they were flying over the Gulf of Mexico which meant they were actually west of Florida. Taylor gave an order that they should fly due east until they ran out of gas. He figured they had a better chance of being picked up close to shore. It sounded to people on the ground that at some point Lieutenant Taylor must have temporarily given command of the flight to Captain Powers. Only now Lieutenant Taylor was reasserting his command once again and telling the men they needed to turn around and head east again. At 6.30pm, one more garbled message was picked up from Taylor. All planes close up tight, We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first planes drop below 10 gallons, 
we all go down together. These were reportedly the last words anyone ever heard from Flight 19. At approximately 7 p.m., Flight 19 may have been spotted by the aircraft carrier USS Solomons. The report later given to the Board of Investigation stated that four to six planes were spotted flying at an altitude of 4,000 feet. We don't know for certain that this was Flight 19, but it's reasonable to assume it was. By that time, alerts have been sent out to every air station and naval vessel in the area to be on the lookout for the missing flight. Search and rescue aircraft were sent out searching along the Florida coast for Flight 19. This included two giant Martin Mariner PBM-5 flying boats, which were dispatched at 7.25 p.m. Each of these planes carried 13 crewmen. Five minutes after takeoff, one of these search and rescue aircraft sent a routine radio transmission. But after that, the plane was never heard from again. It, too, just vanished without a trace, only further deepening the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. The next morning, one of the most extensive air and sea search missions in history began. The Navy and Coast Guard sent out 248 planes and 18 ships looking for Flight 19 and their lost rescue plane. The search team spread out over 200,000 miles of the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico looking for the missing crewmen. But no trace of any of them was ever found. One of the searchers was later quoted as saying, They vanished as completely as if they had flown to Mars. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While we don't know for certain what happened to Flight 19, the disappearance of the Martin Mariner rescue plane might be a little easier to explain. The night the Martin Mariner disappeared, a civilian tanker, the SS Gaines, later reported seeing a plane falling from the sky as well as fuel burning. There was a known problem with the Martin Mariner flying boats in that they were highly combustible, and it's sometimes been known in the past to just plain explode. It's for this reason that these planes were often referred to as flying gas tanks. Later on, a large oil slick was found right in the area where the SS Gaines reported seeing the plane go down. But the fact that no wreckage was ever located from the rescue plane only further adds to the legend of the Bermuda Triangle. On the day after Flight 19 vanished, the crew of an Eastern Airlines DC-3 reported seeing a red flare in the swamps north of Vero Beach, Florida. Searchers examined the area, but no trace of the missing aircraft was found either. Then a few days later, the family of one of the missing flight crew received a disturbing message. The family of Sergeant George Payanessa, one of the radio men aboard one of the Flight 19 planes, received a Western Union telegram that was sent from the Naval Air Station in Jacksonville. The telegram read, I am very much alive, and was signed, Georgie. According to family members, no one outside the family ever referred to Sergeant Payanessa as Georgie. But after that, no further communications were received, and to this day it's still unknown who sent the telegram, and if it was just a cruel hoax. The U.S. Navy later issued a 500-page report, putting the blame for what happened squarely on the shoulders of Lieutenant Taylor. The naval investigators found Lieutenant Taylor suffered from, quote, mental aberration that caused him to lead his training flight wildly off course over the Atlantic, where they presumably crashed and died. But Catherine Taylor, Lieutenant Charles Taylor's mother, strongly refuted this claim. She launched her own investigation, after which the Navy later exonerated her son, 
and changed the official cause of what happened to Flight 19 to unknown. The loss of 14 experienced pilots as well as the 13 aboard one of the search planes became major news for a while. But nonetheless, this event might have been forgotten about had it not occurred just a few years before a couple other events that caused some members of the press to attempt to tie it to UFOs. On June 24, 1947, a private pilot named Kenneth Arnold spotted a group of strange-looking aircraft in the skies over Washington State that later got misquoted as being described looking like flying saucers. Then in January 1948, a U.S. Air Force pilot, Captain Charles Mantell, died when his plane crashed after being sent to intercept a mysterious object over Godman Field in Kentucky. By the 1950s, UFO fever had swept across the country, and the number of reported sightings of unidentified flying objects rose sharply. Then in 1952, an article appeared in the October issue of Fate magazine titled Sea Mystery at Our Back Door, written by George X. Sand, which suggested Flight 19's disappearance could be linked to several other unexplained disappearances over the same stretch of the Atlantic Ocean. A decade later, in the April 1962 issue of American Legion magazine, an article by Alan W. Eckert appeared titled The Mystery of the Lost Patrol, which gave a highly inaccurate overview of what happened to Flight 19. In point of fact, Flight 19 wasn't a patrol at all, but a training flight. Nonetheless, the nickname The Lost Patrol has stuck with the missing flight ever since. It was also in this article where several new quotes purportedly from the members of Flight 19 appeared, which only further deepened the mystery. One such quote claimed one of the pilots said, We cannot be sure which way is west. We cannot be sure of any direction. Everything looks wrong. Strange. The ocean doesn't look as it should. One of the many problems of this article, though, is that later on when the author was asked where he'd gotten this new quote from, along with some of the others, he claimed he couldn't remember. An author named Vincent H. Gaddis is the person most often credited with naming this particular stretch of the Atlantic when he published an article titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle in the February 1964 issue of Argosy Magazine. In his article, Gaddis appeared to take a lot of his information from the previous article by Alan Eckert. He too included several quotes that were allegedly spoken by the members of Flight 19, describing things like the sea below them looking strange and the sun being invisible. Gaddis also speculated wildly about what he describes as atmospheric aberrations opening a hole in the sky and swallowing the planes up. After that, the legend of the Bermuda Triangle was born, and only grew from there. Hundreds more articles, books, documentaries, and TV shows have been made about the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Something else of note, though, is how often many researchers go out of their way to rope in as many unexplained plane and ship disappearances as they can, even if they occurred well outside the triangular boundaries, making the Bermuda Triangle into the Bermuda Trapezoid or worse at times. Many authors and filmmakers have speculated about all sorts of explanations for what is happening in the Triangle. This includes sea monsters, alien abductions, interdimensional portals, and an atmospheric phenomenon that allegedly affects the laws of time and space known as electronic fog. One popular theory that really gained traction following the publication of Charles Berlitz's 1974 book, The Bermuda Triangle, was that the legendary lost city of Atlantis lay at the bottom of the triangle, and that whatever mysterious energy source had caused the island to sink was still down there wreaking havoc on passing planes and ships. Berlitz's book is the first source that really goes out there with some of the most famous and mysterious quotes, things that included... We're entering white water, and don't come after us. They look like they're from outer space. The problem with quotes like these is there is no mention of them in the Navy's 500-page report. 
And without any sort of corroboration, we can only presume any of these quotes were dreamed up by the writers to make things sound more mysterious than they were. If we instead go looking for some more down-to-earth explanations for what is happening in the Bermuda Triangle, some researchers have speculated about enormous rogue waves more than 100 feet high, or even huge undersea methane bubbles emerging from the ocean floor. It's been theorized that these bubbles rise up out of the sea, creating huge areas of negative buoyancy that instantly cause any unlucky ship caught in them to sink right to the bottom. It's even been suggested these same gas bubbles could possibly rise up further and create atmospheric disturbances powerful enough to cause low-flying aircraft to crash. One common belief among some Flight 19 researchers is that the five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers crashed into the Atlantic somewhere east of Daytona Beach. If all five planes went down at a steep enough angle, they would have broken apart. Lieutenant Dave White, who aided in the search mission, described such a crash would have been like the planes had run straight into a brick wall. Nonetheless, it still remains widely believed there should have been at least some wreckage found if that were the case. In 1991, treasure hunter Graham Hawks announced to the world he had found the remains of Flight 19 on the bottom of the Atlantic. He discovered five planes lying on the C-4 that matched the descriptions of the missing TBM Avengers. But eventually Hawks was forced to admit he was mistaken after the tail number of one of the planes didn't match that of Flight 19 and could actually be traced to a different flight that went down over the ocean a couple years earlier. Although the Navy was initially quick to lay all the blame on Lieutenant Charles Taylor, the real solution to the mystery might be more complex than that. Some researchers have speculated that a whole slew of issues all compounded together to cause pretty much everything to go wrong. No one knows exactly what it was that was bothering Lieutenant Taylor on the day he was to lead Flight 19. Later on, Taylor's mother began making claims that her son must have had some premonition of disaster before taking off. In fact, that same explanation has often been cited in books and movies regarding the one crewman, Corporal Alan Cox, who asked not to have to take part in the mission, leaving them one man short. In truth, the explanation for him is a lot more mundane. Corporal Cox had already logged all the flight hours he needed to graduate and didn't need to go out on Flight 19 that day. As for Taylor himself, some people have speculated that he may have simply been hung over that day. Although others who knew him claimed Taylor was never much of a drinker. We'll probably never know what it was that caused Taylor's odd behavior that day. Something else that is often not widely reported that this wasn't even the first time Taylor had gotten lost before. During World War II, Taylor had gotten lost on at least a couple of occasions and had to be rescued during combat missions. Based on some of his unusual radio responses, it sounds like he became rattled after he and the rest of Flight 19 got lost, and things only grew worse from there. But even still, it doesn't seem likely that all the problems the flight experienced could all be traced to Taylor. This was a group of 14 experienced pilots, and all of them really did appear to experience navigation troubles that day. But there may be an explanation for that as well. Remember how some of the TBM Avengers didn't have electronic clocks installed even though they were all supposed to? Some researchers have suggested this may have been because of shoddy work by the trainees who were supposed to equip the planes. Now suppose on top of that some of their compasses were installed improperly as well. That would mean that two of the most vital pieces of navigational equipment each plane was supposed to have were either missing or malfunctional. And even though each airman was expected to be wearing a wristwatch to compensate for the missing clocks, it's even been speculated that Lieutenant Taylor wasn't wearing one that day. A later search of his personal effects revealed a wristwatch. 
Although it's certainly possible you owned more than one watch, it is a telling clue nonetheless. On top of all that, it's possible that since the flight took off later than planned because Lieutenant Taylor arrived at the briefing a half hour late, the weather could have shifted enough to create even more problems. For the first leg of their journey, Flight 19 was experiencing a 31-knot tailwind that would have actually propelled the planes a little faster. But then when they turned on the next leg, that wind would have been pushing against them on their port side, which could have shoved them that much more off course. Remember, these men were supposed to be flying by dead reckoning, which meant for everything to go right, they needed to stick to their carefully calculated flight plan that day. If anything threw those calculations off, even by a few degrees, they could have started drifting off course without even knowing it, and then things would have gotten progressively worse the longer they flew. Then, if Lieutenant Taylor began experiencing strange compass readings, this likely would have caused even more confusion. Taking all that into consideration, it becomes a little easier to understand how all these experienced pilots might have become so disoriented and so hopelessly lost. On top of all that, if the pilots really had simply become lost over the Atlantic and were forced to ditch their planes, there's even a plausible explanation why no wreckage has ever been found. The Gulf Stream is a powerful ocean current that runs north from the Gulf of Mexico up around the eastern coast of the United States and around Canada. Think of it like a raging river running just beneath the ocean's surface. The Gulf Stream could have swept away any debris from the missing planes at a speed of approximately 4 miles per hour. Since the massive naval search didn't even begin until December 7th, 40 hours after Flight 19 disappeared, any debris from the missing planes could have been sucked away farther north as much as 160 miles. So where does that leave us with the mystery of what happened to Flight 19? And for the entire Bermuda Triangle mystery as well. Well, according to the U.S. Navy and the Coast Guard, statistically speaking, there aren't any more planes or ships that go missing in the Bermuda Triangle than any other heavily trafficked part of the ocean. The fact is that planes do crash and boats do sink sometimes. And while quite a few of those do have some element of unexplained mystery to them, it doesn't necessarily mean UFOs or the lost city of Atlantis are to blame. Perhaps when you get right down to it, the greatest secret of the Bermuda Triangle is that there is no secret at all. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Patrick for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads a good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts from as well. We also have a website, The Conspirators Podcast, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, look us up on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Feel free to reach out to us at any of those places, or even drop us a line by sending an email to theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.